today on Against the Grain. Advancements in science are seen as symbols of human progress, but science has frequently served deadly ends. Historian Clifford Connor discusses how scientific research in the United States is deeply enmeshed with the military and considers the purpose of trillions of dollars in military spending. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Scientific research in the United States is funded with public money, yet much of it isn't produced in the public interest. Instead, as historian of science Clifford Connor documents, vast amounts of federal R&D money is used for military purposes. In the tragedy of American science, from Truman to Trump, out in an updated edition from Haymarket, Connor examines the profoundly entangled relationship between science and the U.S. military, especially since World War II. While we're going to talk most extensively about the connection between American science and the military, I'd be remiss to not ask you about the degree to which science in this country is beholden to corporate interests. How significant is it and, and why? Well, as you've said, the, uh, the, name, the title of the book is The Tragedy of American Science. And the theme of the book as a whole really can be summarized in two words, corporatization and militarization. Um, in this case, uh, the word corporatization and privatization, uh, th th those are interchangeable words. The classic ideal of science is unbiased investigation. Uh, science isn't supposed to be a way of proving something that you want to prove or something that a corporation wants to prove. So consider the phrase, very familiar phrase, science in the public interest. The opposite of that is science in the private interest, which I consider an oxymoron, uh, a, a pure contradiction in terms. Research done in the private interest doesn't really deserve to be called science at all. That would include all of the research done directly by corporations or funded by corporations, which is to say the vast majority of research done in the United States today, and the world for that matter. Most of the research in the United States is devoted to increasing corporate profits, and that is corrupted science, corrupted in order to drive in a, uh, economic inequality. Uh, I could give you a few examples if you like. Sure, and, and can you also explain how this came to be? Okay, the examples I had in mind uh, were, uh, these are major examples, of course. I mean, there's thousands, but the three major examples are, first of all, so-called tobacco science, which for decades aimed to prove that cigarettes don't cause cancer and uh, smoking doesn't kill people and that sort of thing. Uh, a more recent example is the scandal of what's called pain management science that was corrupted to favor the marketing of addictive opioids that have killed hundreds of thousands of people in this country alone. And then one of the main ones is the absurdity of the scientific pretensions of climate change denial. And this connection between American science and, and corporations this is not a recent intertwinement. So how do we understand it? Where does it come from? Uh, no, it's not recent. We can talk about uh, some of the history of American science uh, uh, and how World War II contributed to that. But uh, just over time, uh, corporations have just gained more and more power in the economy in general and have taken control of the uh, scientific enterprise of, uh, in the United States as well. Well, let me ask you about federal research and development money, R&D. Um, when we look at the monies that the federal government spends on research and development, where does it go? Oh, that's a good question. First of all, let's talk about the, uh, the dimensions of federal R&D money. Uh, I say in the book, and, and I don't think this will be a surprise to anybody, that uh, 
trillions of dollars in federal funding are devoted to military research. A lot of people might think that's an exaggeration, but it's actually an understatement. And I give the, uh, uh, the sources for that in the book. The first thing to think of is how much federal money total, not just for research, but total, goes to the military every year. And I think uh, most people are familiar with maybe not precisely those figures, but the general uh, dimension of uh, official military budgets have been in the hundreds of billions of dollars for a long time. Uh, the Trump administration's final military budget proposal in 2020 uh, was $730 billion, which was a record at the time. Biden's current military budget is $813 billion. That's $83 billion more than Trump's which is kind of ironic because, uh, as you know, progressive Democrats like Bernie Sanders uh, have been pushing for a 10% reduction. So what was Biden's answer? He increased it by more than 10%. <laughs> uh, anyway, what is all this money for? Uh, it's, we're told it's for national defense against, first of all, terrorists. But that's absurd because uh, why would we need a multi-trillion dollar nuclear arsenal, for example, to defend against a few thousand angry people in the Middle East who are armed with box cutters and uh, improvised explosive devices. Uh, somebody say, might say, oh, it's not just terrorists. We have to defend ourselves against Russia and China. Well, $813 billion a year is more than three times what China spends on their military and more than 15 times what Russia spends. And that $813 billion is an understatement, by the way. The real amount the Amer uh, American military spends on past, present, and future wars is way more than a trillion dollars a year. And that's been the case for at least the last decade. The $813 billion figure doesn't include money for uh, militarized agencies like NASA or Homeland Security or Veterans Affairs, and several others. But most of all, it doesn't include the interest on the part of the national debt that was incurred by past military spending, which is a huge amount. So this whole thing is just a massive hoax on the American public. It's not only diverting our tax money toward the military-industrial complex, but at the same time, it's making the world we live in a far more dangerous place. It's not defending us. The threat of nuclear holocaust is an existential threat to the entire human race. Indeed it is. And then in this massive military budget, uh, how much of the money that we think is going for science in the public interest, um, public monies, is actually going for military purposes? A uh, very important question. Uh, how much of the federal spending on science and technology goes to the military? And the answer is more than half. So I uh, feel totally justified in saying in the book that most of the federal R&D money goes to the military. Uh, and, and again, I give the sources for that. That's not to say that most of the overall military budget goes for science and technology, but the R&D money spent on high-tech weaponry is at the base of the whole pyramid. The science and technology creates the weapons that trillions of our tax dollars are spent on. And I think you asked before, uh, what have we gotten for that? What these trillions of dollars spent on military research and development, nuclear weapons, drones, hypersonic missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles, F-35 uh, joint strike fighters, and high-tech weapons of every description. And we'll talk more as we go through the hour about some of those creations uh, of our tax dollars. But let's back up and talk about how things got to the state that we find ourselves in now. World War II was a pivotal moment. What was American science, though, like before World War II? Uh, World War II actually was the major turning point, uh, because before that, science was pretty much a matter of relatively small-scale ventures carried out by individual scientists and 
uh, individual companies in some cases. Uh, small stuff. But after World War II, science was characterized by large teams of professional researchers working on a grand scale with substantial government and, and corporate funding. Uh, this transformation is, uh, the shorthand term for it, is the birth of big science. And what does that term big science mean? Well, we're in an era of, of big science where uh, science is uh, composed not of uh, small individual researchers trying to figure things out, but uh, huge teams of researchers doing major projects. Presumably with major funding? Absolutely. Uh, the transformation was fundamentally a function of economic globalization, uh, the growth and integration of the world economy. Now, most people think of economic globalization as something that's happened fairly recently, but it really began around 1870 and grew rapidly up until World War I, all due to the advancement of the uh, science and technology of the time the railroads and steamships, the telegraph, and so forth. I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but the transformation to big science began in Germany. World War I disrupted the process of economic globalization, but it stimulated the growth of big science in other ways. Uh, when German science introduced chemical weapons into warfare, and then other countries, including the United States, followed their example. But it was in World War II that big science fully emerged onto the scene. By the end of World War II, the German state and German science lay in ruins, but the United States and its wartime ally, the Soviet Union, picked up the pieces. I, I can talk about another change in American science that was brought about by World War II, and that is uh, that American science became ideologically dominated by the physics profession. And it's all because of the military, uh, I mean, the Manhattan Project. Right, you write that World War I was a chemist's war, presumably mustard gas and all of these horrible weapons of chemical destruction, and that World War II was the physicist's war. Exactly, which, uh, of course, resulted in the, uh, in the Manhattan Project's creation of the nuclear weapons that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and uh, the other side of that, what came of that is that uh, I mentioned that American science then became ideologically dominated by physicists. The uh, post-war governmental policy uh, put theoretical physics on a pedestal as the model science against which all other sciences should be measured. And as a result, a few aristocrats of physics emerged as the primary spokespeople for American science. The generals and admirals chose veterans of the Manhattan Project, uh, many of whom had very hardline Cold War views that matched their own, uh, to be their preferred collaborators. And so, as a result, the physics profession, and by extension, all of institutionalized American science, came under the control of a conservative bureaucratic elite closely allied with the war machine. Right, and then there's the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer as, I guess, a bit of an outlier uh, who was part of the Manhattan Project and ended up being a victim of the Cold War. Exactly. Can you tell us about that? Sure. As I said, thanks to the Manhattan Project, the uh, institutional science in the United States came under the ideological influence of politically conservative physicists. That, that happened because it was the most vociferous of the scientific establishment's war hawks. Right-wing physicists like Edward Teller and Ernest O. Lawrence, who became the favored collaborators of the military and the Cold Warriors. Right, and who uh, Bay Area listeners will, of course, know as the name Ernest Lawrence, the Lawrence Livermore Nuclear Weapons Lab in Livermore, California. Right, Ernest O. Lawrence was the first director of that, and Teller was his... Uh, scientific, uh, chief scientific advisor, and, and it was in Livermore, California, as you said. Ernest O. Lawrence and uh, Edward Teller and their protégés had a lot to do with the creation of DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the, the Pentagon's premier scientific agency, 
which has played a huge role in the tragedy of American science. But uh, Oppenheimer was out of step after the war with the Cold War ethos that had developed in the United States. He argued against, uh, and, and by the way, he wasn't alone. Uh, he and the entire, almost every um, nuclear physicist at the time argued against the development of the hydrogen bomb. Uh, Edward Teller, who I was just talking about, is widely recognized in the popular culture as the father of the hydrogen bomb. And uh, nuclear physicist who served on the General Advisory Committee of the U.S. Atomic Energy uh, Commission, including its chairman J. Robert Oppenheimer, unanimously declared that the H-bomb was a very bad idea. Can you remind us what the H-bomb is? Oh, sure. The, the original atom bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki were nuclear fission weapons, and that was bad enough. Uh, but the invention of hydrogen bombs or thermonuclear fusion weapons was a thousand times worse. Um, an exchange of atomic bombs uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States probably could have resulted in millions of lives lost but an exchange of hydrogen bombs could literally snuff out all human life on Earth. Pro-war policymakers will try to convince us that that's an exaggeration, but I assure you it isn't. So when the, the Soviet Union tested its first atomic bomb, fission bomb, in 1949, and President Truman res, uh, responded by announcing that the United States would, would then create a super bomb, a thermonuclear weapon with explosive power that would dwarf the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. And of course the Soviet Union immediately vowed to do the same, and so the arms race was on. The United States performed its first hydrogen bomb test in 1952, and that test released the energy equivalent of more than 700 times that of the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. Uh, and the these hydrogen bombs just got bigger and bigger until 1961 when the Soviet Union tested the largest bomb ever detonated. It was a 50 megaton giant with the explosive force of 3,800 Hiroshima blasts. And you can imagine it could, <laughs> uh, it could draw, you know, knock the earth off course if, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's, 3,800 Hiroshima blasts is uh, an amazing number. Today, their proliferation to other nations makes the danger greater than ever before. As of 2013, nine nations had more than 10,000 thermonuclear warheads in their arsenals, not counting additional thousands of so-called retired warheads in storage. But uh, let me go back to right after World War II when this debate was going on uh, about whether to even create a, uh, a super bomb, a thermonuclear bomb, or not. And as I said, uh, Truman was uh, in favor of it, but his uh, scientific advisors, uh, led by uh, Oppenheimer, unanimously declared that the H-bomb's indiscriminate destructiveness rendered it militarily worthless, capable only of serving a policy of exterminating civilian populations. On the other side, you had uh, Edward Teller and Ernest Lawrence waging an unrelenting battle in favor of the H-bomb. Uh, their arguments owed less to science than to McCarthyism, the anti-communist fever that was afflicting the country at the time. Now, whether or not Teller and Lawrence actually influenced the final outcome of this debate, they were on the winning side. In January 1950, Truman gave the go-ahead to an expedited program to create the hydrogen bomb. So uh, Oppenheimer then was red-baited by Teller and others and was permanently barred from government posts. Other nuclear physicists, uh, including those who had earlier sh uh, shared Oppenheimer's opposition to the H-bomb, got the message and understood that their careers depended on falling in line behind the Cold War militarists. Historian of science Clifford Connor is my guest. 
We're discussing the tragedy of American science from Truman to Trump. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you argue that the Truman administration was really crucial for the reorientation of American science coming out of World War II. And I wanted to ask you about, in the context of the Cold War, this context that you've been describing of hawkish, militarized science, what happened with something called Operation Paperclip? Ooh, that's a big question. And uh, it's so important to this history and to the tragedy that, of American science that I'm trying to describe. Operation Paperclip was a secret program operated by the American military that brought into the United States some 1,600 German scientists who had served uh, the Third Reich, Hitler's Third Reich. Many of these scientists had been active members, and some even in the upper leadership of the Nazi party. Operation Paperclip wasn't only secret, it was illegal, and that's why it was kept secret. Bringing Nazi war criminals into the United States was illegal under American law, but that was the whole purpose of Operation Paperclip. Some of those war criminals had created heinous weapons of terror for the Nazi military, Others had performed lethal medical experiments on inmates at Dachau and other concentration camps. But rather than prosecuting them for war crimes, Operation Paperclip sanitized their war records and gave them American citizenship and gave them long careers in prestigious American research institutions and rewarded them with accolades and high honors. And uh, this is really important, as I think you were suggesting, uh, because Operation Paperclip was a major factor driving the Cold War militarization of American science. Uh, its legacy includes uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, poison gases and nerve agents like sarin, and weaponized bubonic plague. Uh, the United States' ability to surpass the Soviet Union in missile technology owed a great deal to Operation Paperclip. And this is important to, to understand. The German emigres were not a minor supplement to American science. They became its essential core. The critical importance of the Nazi physicists to American rocket science is, is not a secret. The American military at that time estimated that the Germans were 25 years ahead of American science uh, in, in rocketry. The most famous of the Nazi war criminals in Operation Paperclip was Werner von Braun, who created the Nazi V-2 rockets that bombed England and killed British uh, civilians in large numbers during the war. He manufactured those rockets at the Dora Nordhausen concentration camp, where tens of thousands of slave laborers were killed or were worked to death under his command. And then he came to the United States where he helped to develop the uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that carry hydrogen bomb warheads. Then he became the first head of NASA, and he's generally treated as a great American hero of science. Uh, there are many more. Uh, if you're a space enthusiast, you may also recognize the names of other Nazi war criminals who rose to the top of American rocket science. Uh, Walter Dornberger, uh, Arthur Rudolph, who developed the giant Saturn V rockets that carried the first manned flight to the moon in 1969. Uh, Kurt Debus was the first director of the Kennedy Space Center at Cape Canaveral. Uh, Hubertus Strughold was uh, called the father of American space medicine. Uh, so anyway, the, the details of Operation Paperclip only began to come into public view in the late 1980s, and it wasn't until 1998 that most of what we know today uh, became public knowledge. But what all this re revealed was the deep continuity linking Nazi science with contemporary American science. You know, you've been describing the transformation of American science in World War II and coming out of World War II in the context of the Cold War, this ultra-militarization of science funding the recruitment of these Nazi scientists to transform U.S. science, the kind of squelching of dissent within the U.S. scientific establishment. 
I wonder if you can tell us about another dimension, which is the RAND Corporation. Perhaps you could start by describing what it is and why it became so important for U.S. science. Yes, it was an important uh, institution of American science. I say was because it's not really that much uh, anymore, but the RAND Corporation originated, and by the way, the name RAND is just a mashup of R and D, RAND. Like research and development. Research and development, right. Uh, the RAND Corporation originated as uh, a project within the Douglas Ar Aircraft Corporation in 1945, just one month after World War II ended. The Air Force created it in collaboration with the uh, U.S. Department of War. Did you know that what we call the Department of Defense for almost 200 years in the United States was called the Department of War? A little more transparent. Exactly. That was another Cold War. It's, it's what you might call today, uh, the uh, PR people would call rebranding. Instead of calling it the Department of War, which it really is, and that's accurate, they call it the Department of Defense, which it absolutely is not. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the Air Force created the RAND Corporation uh, in, in collaboration with what then was the U.S. Department of War. Uh, the mission of the RAND Corporation was to coordinate federal and corporate science and technology projects with military planning. And their stated objective was to ensure, I'm quoting, to ensure American technological preeminence. Uh, in 1948, it formally separated from Douglas Aircraft and became the RAND Corporation uh, as a private nonprofit organization. The RAND Corporation brings to mind Daniel Ellsberg, and I wanted to ask you more broadly, in the post-war period that we're talking about, you were talking about the repression of dissent uh, in the red baiting and blacklisting of um, J. Robert Oppenheimer, but I wonder how much uh, during this period um, from World War II to the present there have been dissident scientists or dissidents within these scientific uh, establishment institutions that have blown the whistle or raised questions about the uh, deep militarization of American science? Well, to tell you the truth, um, that's what it's going to take, I think, to, uh, to solve the uh, tragedy of American science, but I don't see it on the horizon anytime soon. Um, but looking back historically, have there been figures who have, beside the, the Daniel Ellsbergs, who have blown the whistle or uh, raised questions about the direction of science? Uh, there have been people who have done it, but not so much from within science. Uh, my favorite uh, example is uh, Rachel Carson. Uh, she was not a member of the scientific establishment, uh, but from outside she changed the direction of science in, in many significant ways. As far as dissident scientists within institutionalized science, it's pretty rare. The one significant example I can think of uh, off the top of my head, during the 1980s, uh, you may remember and Edward Teller had a lot to do with this again, uh, Star Wars program, uh, the SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative of Ronald Reagan, which was a total fraud on the American public. Uh, it was just a scheme that really served to spend billions of dollars on uh, something that could not possibly have worked, and that was this idea of putting a, uh, a shield in the sky to defend us against incoming intercontinental ballistic missiles with hydrogen bombs on them. Uh, that was supposed to make us feel safe, but it was really just, uh, uh, you know, at best a false sense of security. Well, during that time, uh, a significant amount of physicists uh, signed petitions saying that this is all malarkey, uh, we're not going to work on it, and a lot of them refused to work on it. And that was a good movement. 
But in the long run, it didn't work because uh, the government was able to buy as many scientists as it need because people spend their lives studying physics and uh, they want to be physicists and they want to be scientists. And the only place they can get a job is when the government is paying them to create this absurd scheme of, uh, uh, you know, uh, lasers to shoot down incoming ICBMs. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm speaking with Clifford Connor. He is the author of The Tragedy of American Science, From Truman to Trump, which is published by Haymarket Books. He formerly taught at the School of Professional Studies at the CUNY Graduate Center. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So let me ask you about some of the weaponry that has been the result of American science using public funding for ends that don't benefit the public. Can you tell us about the development of napalm and anti-personnel bombs? Uh, Sure. Uh, Napalm was a terror weapon designed to burn people to death. Uh, It's uh, sticky jello type uh, material that sticks to the skin when the bomb explodes. It uh, it spreads this over a large territory, and uh, human beings are set on fire and burned to death slowly. So it's uh, it's the worst form of torture you can imagine. And and that's not accidental, by the way. Uh, that is the way the military mind works. It wants to terrorize people, and. Uh, so that's why they developed napalm. That's why they used it. That's why they dropped it in large numbers of bombs in Vietnam. But when the news photos and videos of children being burned to death by American napalm was shown on, on American TV, it became a huge scandal during the Vietnam War. And the manufacturer of, uh, of napalm, Dow Chemical, became a major target of anti-war demonstrations. In 1980, there was a United Nations treaty to outlaw napalm bombs, and it was signed by almost every country in the world except the United States. The United States finally signed it in 2009, but uh, all that happened was that the Pentagon renamed their bombs. Instead of calling them napalm bombs, they now call them Mark 77 fire bombs, and they keep stockpiling them. What about drones? Um, Drones are something that in many ways have been given almost a, a warm and fuzzy feel in the United States because drones can be a children's toy. Drones might bring your package from Amazon if they have their way. Uh, tell us about the development of drones. Yeah, that, that is, uh, I won't say funny, but uh, there's a humorous element to it, the idea of drones being warm and fuzzy. Uh, uh, Military drones are not the cute little quadcopters that we civilians think of when we hear hear that word drones. Um, the military drones' wingspans are often as big as mid-sized jet aircraft, and they can launch cruise missiles and drop 500-pound bombs. Uh, the one uh, brand name, so to speak, of drones are the Reaper drones. Reaper drones are 36 feet long, and they have a 66-foot wingspan. They can carry thousands of pounds of attack munitions, including laser-guided air-to-ground Hellfire missiles. Uh, And the Hellfire missiles are the weapons most frequently launched from American drones. Uh, You ask how they were developed. They they actually have been uh, uh, under development since the Vietnam War. And... uh, Back then, though, they were uh, uh, the first drones were, were uh, you mentioned toys. They were almost toys, uh, but they were being used in Vietnam. They were being developed by the, uh, the organization that I, I hope we'll be talking about here, DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Uh, but the first drones were uh, used for surveillance, uh, like the ones with cameras today that uh, civilians use. They were used for dropping leaflets, uh, propaganda leaflets. Uh, they were used as decoys when uh, uh, the military wanted to send up missiles 
and didn't want them shot out of the sky, so they would send up drones as decoys to uh, protect their real missiles. Uh, but it took several decades before they were really big enough to become what a drone is today, uh, as I was talking about the Reaper drones that are used in the Middle East and, and drop uh, and, and launch Hellfire missiles and so forth. Uh, what really needed to be uh, done was the uh, the technological development that was necessary was computer uh, miniaturization. It was only when computers uh, became very miniaturized that all of these things that uh, these drones can do today uh, are able to do. When we talk about the Reaper, uh, it's not merely a weapon, it, uh, it's a weapon system. To keep dozens, uh, not just one drone, but dozens of pilotless aircraft in the air simultaneously, 24 hours a day, requires coordination and communications technology with a level of sophistication almost beyond imagination. At a typical drone base in the Middle East, Reapers operate in groups of four. In a four Reaper squadron, each one requires two operators on the ground, one of which will pilot the drone, and the other one manages the data that the drone collects and disseminates. Now those two-person teams uh, could be at a nearby airbase, or they could be thousands of miles away at consoles in the United States. And then there's an overall commander overseeing this operation, maybe from a third remote location. Furthermore, these two-person teams switch off with, uh, with other two-person teams in mid-flight, so that one team handles takeoff and landing, while the other team uh, runs what they call the hunter-killer part of the mission. So I've devoted a chapter to describing these drones and the war crimes that they perpetrated, including massive kill killings of civilians and illegal assassinations of foreigners and American citizens alike. Uh, the last thing I'll say on this is that while this drone technology and remote control warfare have really created a nightmare scenario, it's get, it gets worse. By combining remote-controlled aircraft with artificial intelligence, drones now have what's called lethal autonomy capability. That means that they have the ability to, and I'm going to quote the official wordage here, they have the ability to hunt, identify, and kill the enemy based on calculations made by software, not decisions made by human operators. Historian of science Clifford Connor is my guest. He's the author of The Tragedy of American Science, From Truman to Trump. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You mentioned artificial intelligence, and I wanted to ask you about AI, which has been much ballyhooed, the various innovations of Google and Apple and the big tech companies in coming up with artificial intelligence. Can you tell us about how that research, the research that such things are based on, wasn't developed by those companies, but in fact by the military. Uh, artificial intelligence, first of all, is the attempt to develop computers that can be programmed to mimic human intelligence, uh, which is to say to create machines that can think like human beings. What I'm trying to say in this book is that what it's for is not for us to be able to find our way around the back roads with uh, GPS and uh, it was all, every bit of it was created by the military and for one reason and that is to make the military more lethal, to, to uh, be able to kill more people uh, more efficiently. Uh, most of us know AI uh, for its use in facial recognition software in our computers or as I mentioned in self-driving, uh, well in self-driving vehicles or uh, in the so-called virtual per personal assistants like Siri or Alexa. All of the advanced robotics used in most industries these days depends on artificial intelligence. So we have AI all around us all the time. It's become commonplace. But these uses don't answer the question what it was created for. To know that, uh, the answer to that question, you have to know where it came from. Uh, what's, that's not as well known to the general public. But the answer isn't a mystery, it came from the military. Artificial intelligence 
was for the most part created and developed by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. For example, if you thought Siri was invented by Steve Jobs or Apple engineers working for him, you would have been wrong. Siri was created by a DARPA program called PAL, Personalized Assistant That Learns. That was the largest AI research project in American history. In DARPA's own words, PAL's mission was, quote, to make military decision-making more efficient and more effective. But eventually the PAL technology was acquired by Apple, which led to Siri becoming the automated voice of the iPhone operating system. And then came uh, Alexa and so forth. And that's why I'm saying that uh, the um, uh, American civilian population looks at uh, artificial intelligence as something that was developed by big tech, but it wasn't. We've really only just scratched the surface of the creations of the U.S. military using U.S. science, American science, and the plethora of weapons systems of all kinds that have been developed. But I wanted to ask you, at the beginning of the program, you were describing the incredible amounts of money that are used on the military and how the U.S. dwarfs by a mile its other competitors militarily. And so, you know, it raises the question, well, why is all this money being spent on the military in the first place? I mean, couldn't they get away with being the dominant imperial power without spending as much as they currently are? What would happen if all that investment in military research and militarization went away? What would the consequences be for the U.S. economy? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think that's a question that most people are not aware uh, of the answer to. Uh, I'm going to sum it up in two words, weaponized Keynesianism. Uh, it, it sounds like a very academic phrase, but uh, it's actually an easy thing to understand. An another term for it is military Keynesianism. Uh, now, Keynesianism was uh, an economic theory developed by John Maynard Keynes, a British economist who was trying to figure out uh, not only what caused the Great Depression, but how it could be ended and how to prevent them in the future. Well, first of all, weaponized Keynesianism, I should say, it's a sh it really is a shorthand way of explaining why the American economy is so extremely dependent on military spending, why the United States devotes an absurd proportion, I mean, think, think of it, truly absurd proportion of our national wealth to weapons and wars, and why the military budget keeps growing year in and year out. And here's what it boils down to. Without the trillion-plus dollars a year in military spending, the employment rate would rise to the skies, and the American economy would have a grand mal seizure and go into permanent paralysis, and then the global economy would also collapse. So John Maynard Keynes thought about this and decided that the problem was insufficient effective demand. The capitalist economy is brilliantly productive, but it doesn't create enough demand for the products it produces. So somehow there's got to be more spending for those products. And where is that spending going to come from? Main, uh, Keynes said it has to come from government spending, and lots of it. It takes a lot of government spending to keep the wheels of the economy turning. As he saw it, the amount of government spending necessary to keep a modern capitalist economy on the tracks would have to be massive and never-ending. Taxation couldn't provide enough income to sustain the level of government funding required by this strategy. The extra amount has to be provided by deficit spending. And to be successful, the def deficit spending would have to not only continue without end, but also continually increase. And if you think about this, how could that be sustainable? But anyway, uh, Keynes didn't have an answer for that. Uh, he said, and uh, <laughs> he tried to avoid the question. Whenever a reporter asked him that, he'd say, in the long run, we're all dead. So that wasn't very uh, optimistic, but anyway. 
policymakers began to uh, think about it and realize that the only way they could justify massive deficit spending ever increasing was by military spending. And that's why we find ourselves today in this absurd situation of trillion dollar plus war budgets. Now this is a very plausible explanation. It took unprecedented massive military expenditures to end the Great Depression of the 1930s. As economist Paul Krugman explains, it was, and I'm quoting him, the large public works program otherwise known as World War II that ended the Great Depression. Now, the next thing is, what has this got to do with science? Military research only accounts for a fraction of the trillions of dollars in war spending. Although that's true, it's the R&D money spent on creating high-tech weaponry. I said this before. Uh, that's what's at the base of the whole process. It's the science and technology that creates the weapons that the military spends trillions of our dollars on. Let me end with a question from our moment, which is uh, we have now been living for several years through a pandemic which has brought to the fore a great deal of skepticism and mistrust of establishment science. And uh, that skepticism and mistrust has also led to many lives lost by people opting not to get vaccines. And yet, it sounds like there's a lot of reason to be skeptical of science. How do you make sense of the complexity of the anti-science sentiment around COVID? Well, first of all, I'll say that the COVID-19 pandemic has presented us uh, with a new stage in the tragedy of American science. The tragedy has been elevated onto an even higher plane. Anti-science is a central element of the irrationalism that has been deliberately promoted to build a right-wing political base in the United States, which is designed to destroy the functions of government that serve the public interest, from public education to social security to public health, and everything else. This rise in irrationalism has inflamed the so-called science wars in the United States, the public disputes over science policy that had been going on well before COVID-19 came on the scene, and even well before uh, Donald Trump came on the scene as well. Uh, those battles, though, have really become sharper and fiercer since the onset of the pandemic. On the one hand, we have the foolish, stupid pronouncements of an administration that obviously couldn't care less about human lives other than their own and couldn't give less of a damn about public health. And on the other hand, you have the actual scientists, the epidemiologists, the infectious disease experts, the public health experts. And what do you have? You have many of these public health officials, especially on the local level, are reporting that they've been harassed with death threats from Trump's right-wing base. So that's a stark indicator of how much more serious and bitter the science wars and the irrationalism and the anti-science has become in the COVID era. One very prominent facet of the anti-science problem is the anti-vax sentiment that has undermined public health as, uh, efforts to achieve herd immunity by a mass vaccination campaign to immunize the entire population. Uh, the anti-vax movement disguises itself as a grassroots movement in defense of individual liberty, but in fact it's heavily financed by right-wing billionaires as part of the false populist MAGA campaign against all things in the public interest. Well, indeed. You've detailed the anti-science campaign that's coming from the right, and at the same time, as you have indicated, science in this country has been highly compromised by its close connections to the military and to corporations. So how do you make sense of the kind of skepticism that many people have had around COVID? Part of it, you pointing to the campaigns from the right, but could some of this also be laid at the feet of the way establishment science is practiced today because people don't 
believe, or a lot of people don't, that it's free of corporate influence? Well, that's an excellent question. And uh, yes, of course, uh, if people are suspicious of the vaccines, uh, part of that is because uh, they're rightfully suspicious of uh, big pharma. Uh, but what's happened there has led to a, a false syllogism. COVID-19 vaccines were produced by big pharma. Big pharma is untrustworthy, and that's true. The science of big pharma is untrustworthy. But the false syllogism reaches the conclusion that the COVID-19 vaccines are therefore untrustworthy, and that isn't true. Uh, the reason I can say that uh, without worrying that I'm uh, being fooled by big pharma is that uh, the public health data on the safety and efficacy of the vaccines is based on the results of literally billions of doses already administered. And what this teaches us is that although Big Pharma uh, is untrustworthy when it comes to promoting its own products, but Big Pharma does have the ability to create valid scientific results when it wants to. But the only thing that can make it want to is the prospect of supersized profits. And that's what Trump's Operation Warp Speed was about. Billions of dollars were, were paid out to big pharma firms and to venture capital startups. And, and this wasn't a scientific race for a vaccine among competing research laboratories. It was a speculative frenzy among competing hedge funds. The point of all this is we don't need the billionaires to create and mass manufacture vaccines. The federal government could have done it by itself, just as it did with the Manhattan, Pro Manhattan Project in World War II. Those vaccines could have been made in federal laboratories. Clifford Connor, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Clifford Connor is a historian of science. He is the author of The Tragedy of American Science, From Truman to Trump, which we've been discussing today. That's published by Haymarket Books. Formerly, he taught at the School of Professional Studies at the CUNY Graduate Center, and he's also the author of A People's History of Science. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Mm -hmm.